Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello again, Tomb Believers, and welcome to another installment of Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And uh, we hope you are ready today, because we have two supersized magazines coming up. So we hope you're ready. You know, uh, right. get one of those five-hour energy drinks or something, yep. like uh, uh, get your caffeine and sugar levels high. Take your vitamins, get get that vitamin B up. I've drunken three protein shakes and I've done my stretches. Oh, yeah. So you are you are very prepared. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, this week we are covering Tales of the Zombie number four and Dracula Lives number five. Yeah, and and those, as I said, are both magazines, so we will have uh, multiple stories from each. We'll, we'll get into exactly what we're covering as we get to each issue. Uh, but before we start talking about those horror comics, we do have a little bit of news uh, to cover in what has become, over the weeks and months, the hottest segment in horror comics podcasting. <laughs> Hellstrom So, first on our Hellstrom Watch agenda for today is that it, it's sort of an update, actually. We talked last time about how New Mutants briefly popped up as a digital pre-order on Amazon, and we speculated that that could mean that it is going direct-to-video, as so many films have in recent months. However... That does not appear to be the case. Disney is insisting that New Mutants will see a theatrical release before the end of the year. I believe I'll believe it when I see it. I, well, I've been saying that all along, uh, <laughs> but they have set a new release date of August twenty eighth, twenty twenty, and that is by my count the fifth release date that New Mutants has gotten. Since it was first announced. Uh, to, to go back over the history of New Mutants, as recorded in the tome of failed Fox properties, um, it was initially slated for April 2018. Mm -hmm. Then Fox moved it to February of 2019. Mm -hmm. Then it was pushed back to August of 2019. Mm -hmm. Then Disney bought Fox. Mm -hmm. And Disney moved it to April 3rd, 2020. Mm -hmm. And then all the theaters closed, and so they have moved it once again to August 28th. Yep. And again, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, August, August seems like it's far away, but at the same time, it seems like it's awfully early to be going to a movie at the movie theater. True, true. Although also, what uh, the other thing I could see is if if Disney is hedging their bets on theaters reopening, 
and are assuming that at least for the rest of 2020, if not into 2021, that theaters will be operating at reduced capacity, like 25 to 50% of normal seating, then New Mutants is exactly the kind of movie you put out first, because expectations are already so lowered that it's okay that with the reduced number of tickets sold, it doesn't make a whole lot of money. I disagree. I think that's really? exactly the reason they should put it out on streaming. People are really hurting for original entertainment content right now. I feel like something like New Mutants can make a killing on first digital release. True. And it and it becomes cheaper for a family because for the price of one movie ticket and a bucket of popcorn, the whole family can sit down and watch it together. Right, because uh, Scoob came out as a yeah, yeah, it as a digital first, and that made a killing. Yeah, and, and and Trolls World Tour before it. Now, something to be noted here are those were both family films. Yes. Uh, New Mutants is, I believe, PG-13, so it's not a hard R, so you could still get some of the crossover audience with it. Conceivably, but... In, insofar as that, like, I would imagine, like, a Batman movie or something would probably do well direct-to-video, and those are usually PG-13. But my thinking here is, you know... Scoob is a lot easier of a sell for a, you know, a $20 price tag for a rental for a family than, say, like New Mutants, where the trailer makes it look a little bit, a bit scary for the little ones. Sure. And, and that was, I mean, that was the selling point all along was it's not a regular X-Men movie. It's got more of a horror vibe. But if you're trying to appeal to a broad general audience of parents, kids, teens, and everyone in between, then that like yes. that genre hybridity becomes a curse instead of a blessing. Yes. But at the same time, I, I do still feel like people are kind of starved for entertainment. Kind of like how Disney Plus is announced on July 3rd, we are getting Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. Which wasn't supposed yeah. to come out. Dis mm -hmm. Go ahead. Disney Plus is sort of stacking their summer. They're putting out Hamilton. They're starting their new uh, their new Muppets improv show. Really? Yeah. Um, the Muppets Now is a short form sketch based improv show with Muppets. Interesting. Because I know, like Hamilton was originally supposed to come out in fall of twenty twenty one. Yes, in theaters. Yep. And all of a sudden, they're announced, guess what, guys? July 3rd, Hamilton's dropping. And, you know, power to them. because And Disney has been pretty good about that, all things considered. Like, they have been using... I mean, for, for want of a better word, they have been taking advantage of everyone being stuck at home as a means of pushing Disney Plus subscriptions. Yes, because they, they got the Star Wars movies up quickly, because I think Rise of Skywalker hit very quickly once things started shutting down. Um, they put uh, the Pixar movie onward uh, on Disney Plus right away. Really good. Yep, now they're doing the same thing with Hamilton. So 
to their credit, they are recognizing that there is literally a captive audience for streaming entertainment right now. One thing I do am concerned about, for at least for Hamilton, is I'm worried how much they're going to censor it, though. Yes, and that's something that, that uh, the creator star Lin-Manuel Miranda was asked about back when Disney first bought the rights. And he basically said that no scenes will be cut, um, but that it is possible that they might choose to mute some of the profanity. Mm. And And his comment on it, for better or worse, was who cares if they mute it or not? Your kids already committed it to memory from listening to the cast recording. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Like, like they'll be singing those lines whether Disney puts them on there or not. True. So, Jefferson will always be useless as two shits. <laughs> anyway, next topic. So, after New Mutants, the rest of the news is also not MCU-related, really. Uh, but we are jumping from the Fox X-Men universe to the Sony Spider... I'm not even going to try and say what they decided to call their universe, because... What was it? The Sony Pictures... Universe of Marvel Properties... Something yeah. like that. Some stupid shit. But anyway, they've they've announced several moves within that uh, that adjacent universe. The first of which, and, we're, and we're, I'll go ahead and tip my hand here. We are going to cover all three of these stories in order from most ridiculous to most interesting. Yeah. So, uh, at the height of the, the stupid scale is that... Mark Guggenheim is writing a script for Jackpot. Goddamn Jackpot. Do you remember Jackpot? Because I didn't. I had to look her up. Yes. I remember that she's only famous because Peter thought she might be Mary Jane after the events of One More Day. Yeah. So she's a redhead who's a superhero. She isn't. It's a wig. Right. Right. Uh, but she looks like a redhead. She's a superhero. Her costume, in order to justify the the name, is vaguely casino themed. Yes. Um. And it turns out that she's a mom who fights crime. Yep. It also turns out she's not Mary Jane, so no one ever cared about her ever again. I mean, she and there were actually two jackpots. I like I say, I looked this up. Uh, the first one quits to raise her kid um, and and passes on the name to another character. Uh, that character ends up dying on a mission alongside Spider-Man, um, which leads the original jackpot to return to the identity. Ugh. But basically, jackpot had a handful of appearances in the, I guess, the brand new day era. Yeah. Brand new day. Because um, she, she was a Dan Slott creation. Was she? I thought she was a Guggenheim creation. Mm, she she showed up in some of the da- Dan Slott issues. Hold up. Jackpot creator. Dan Slott, Phil Jimenez. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then after that, there was like one short miniseries featuring the character. Got it. But like... 
has not been an entity in comics in a very long time. Like, like that, uh, Brand New Day was in, like, 2007? Something like that. 2007, 2008. The miniseries, I think, was around that same time. God, has it really been that long? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Dan Slott was on that book forever. Mm. <sighs> so, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's enough material with that character to generate any interest. I don't think there is. There's not enough. Like, the the example they'll always use is the, ah, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy was a hit. Well, mm-hmm. well, yeah, because Guardians of the Galaxy did have a hit run with Abnett and Lanning, which completely revitalized the brand and made it. Re- and even if even if average moviegoers were not aware of the existence of those stories that reinvigorated that title and those characters, like the fact that that material existed gave the screenwriters something to work with work from yeah jackpot like you said i forgot she even fucking existed <laughs> yeah like initial like like i saw it and i thought oh that was the one that might have been mj and that was all i had and then i looked her up and that was all there was like in as far as like relation to spider-man and people giving a crap like i think maddie franklin has a bigger fan base in this character probably I I mean I would be more interested in a Maddie Frank Franklin movie than a Jackpot movie. And let me get let me just be clear here. I never liked Maddie Franklin. <laughs> Fair. Just um I don't know. Like I I don't I don't see who the audience is for this, really. No. Except hey, this is related to Spider-Man, guys. Um and also just as a note, at the bottom of the article that I saw that announced this uh, jackpot movie, it notes that in addition to Morbius being in development and the Venom sequel uh, being in development, that there's also a Craven the Hunter movie being written by Richard Wenk, who wrote the movie The Equalizer with Denzel Washington, which I quite liked. So that, that actually could be good. Um, there are also... Films at various stages of development featuring Silk, which could be good. I could I could see them spinning off Silk from the version of Spider-Man we've got. Eh. Um, and then also Nightwatch. Uh, do you remember Nightwatch? No. Okay, so Nightwatch started out in a, as a night like in the early nineties, nineteen ninety three or so. Uh huh. And he's basically. The Marvel version of Spawn. Oh God, that guy! Uh, he was fairly prominent in Maximum Carnage. Oh no! And then more recently, came back in the 2014 run of She-Hulk. Uh. Okay. I just got. I gotta look at this guy again because this. Uh. He looks like Spawn. No, I know he looks exactly like Spawn. Well, he he looks like if 
if Night Thrasher started dressing like Spawn. <laughs> I could see that so easily now. Like, this is just an alternate costume that Night Thrasher had at one point. Just need just that skateboard. Yep. <laughs> oh my god. So Nightwatch's costume boosts his strength and durability by triggering his adrenal glands and also could use nanotechnology to repair itself. That's not healthy. Um that's the backstory of Darkman. First off, you're not supposed to stimulate your adrenal glands like that. That's that's that's, that's not healthy. You can you, no. can you can wear down the neurotransmitters and <laughs> slow reuptake and just feel. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, also, his cape responds to his subconscious thoughts and so can move on its own to attack his enemies. Oh, see, that's nothing like Spawn. Oh my god. He eventually replaced the cape with a trench coat with similar properties. (laughs) I love the 90s. Yep. Apparently at one point uh, it was rumored that Spike Lee might be working on the Nightwatch movie. Uh, but he has since vehemently denied any connection to it. <laughs> Please. Oh. Yeah, I, I might have to, like, uh, tweet out the cover of Nightwatch number one, just so listeners can see what I'm talking about. Now in his own ongoing series! <laughs> Seriously, it looks like somebody combined... Spawn with um, Azrael Batman. That's actually a pretty good comparison, too. It's, he is so 90s. Because he's, he's got those big gauntlets. Yep, the gauntlets. That was what I was thinking of, yeah. Yep. <sighs> yeah, Nightwatch. Man. Uh, so, hi. that's all real stupid. Everything about everything about what we just talked about is stupid. Um, hi, Sony. The, the- this is the- <laughs> hi, bottom of the barrel. This is Sony. Sony, meet bottom of the barrel. Basically. In addition to that, we also have news from Variety that another Spider-Man adjacent movie is being developed by writer-director S.J. Clarkson. Um, and, and officially, there's no word on what this, this movie will be. Uh, S.J. Clarkson, for what it's worth, has directed um, episodes of Heroes, House, Dexter, uh, Life on Mars. She did the the pilot for a Game of Thrones prequel that HBO ended up not using. Wait, wait, hold Uh, on, hold on, hold on. HBO actually passed on that Game of Thrones prequel? They did, yes. That's insane. Everybody predicted that was going to be the next big thing. Yep. Yep. Wow. Is it, they passed on it. Is it just, it, I wonder if it's just because the last season of Game of Thrones did so badly. Probably so. That it was getting more expensive to produce with diminishing returns. Okay, sorry. Sorry, Tangent. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so, S.J. Clarkson uh, also did episodes of Jessica Jones and The Defenders for Netflix. Okay. So, just to give you give you some background on who she is. 
but she's developing a secret Spider-Man adjacent project that it has been suggested might feature Madam Web. Oh my god, why? Uh... And the only way that really works, I think, is if you base it on uh, Madam Web 2, the second version, uh, who was Julia Carpenter, the former Spider-Woman. Yes. Because that version of Madam Web was more of a daredevil type character like she was blind but she used her extrasensory perception to still be awesome all i I remember madam webb very well from the 90s cartoon series where of course she Mm -hmm. was voiced by joan lee yes yes stanley's wife for those of you who don't know and that's a bit about all I know about the character. Um, she was also the grandmother of the fourth Spider-Woman, Charlotte Witter, who didn't last very long. I don't even remember her. Yeah, she was only around... She was more of a villain. And at some point... She's the um, one that fought Maddie Franklin. Yes, and Maddie Franklin absorbs her powers and leaves her in a coma. Oh, that's lovely. Just super. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> honestly, um, um, if you're gonna do any of the, like, if you're gonna do any of the Spider Women who are not, uh, Spider Gwen. Jessica Drew. So, well, maybe. Although, see, my problem is I think of Jessica Drew as more of an Avengers character. Like, like I think of her as Tony Stark adjacent. Yeah, I can see that. Because they deliberately made and, her and, not connected to Spider-Man. Right, right. Um, Like, I, it, you do Spider-Gwen, because she's popular and she's an interesting take on Gwen Stacy. And since the movies aren't doing a Gwen Stacy, you can get away with that. Yes. Um, or you can do silk, which is another interesting take on a spider woman, spider girl character, um, with slightly different powers from Peter and a slightly different sort of tone and style. You can make that work. The the thing I don't like about silk is that when she and Peter are in a room together, Oh, they can't keep their hands off. Yeah, that's just ew, gross. Yeah, and they've—I think they've distanced themselves from that plot point more recently. But initially, that was just weird and creepy. Like, Spider-Man's supposed to be this everyman character, right? Yes, he has his romances such as that. But the interest character, which he is biologically coded to want to knock boots with. Wow, Dan Slott. Was was do do, do do you need a shower? It's like, <laughs> woo, right? Uh, but if you're not doing Spider Gwen or or a version of Silk, the other character that you do is Aranya. I can't remember remember Aranya's deal right now. Um, so uh, she started out as Aranya. She eventually switched to calling herself Spider Girl. Yes. Uh. And her thing was 
initially uh the the spider society stuff like mystic powers granted by the spider society um but then later on through spider island and spider verse and and some of that stuff she became more closely connected to uh the spider-man characters you know it occurs to me that like if sony really wanted to do something interesting hmm they would do a Spider-Girl series or a Spider-Girl movie, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be Aranya. It would be Mayday Parker. Oh, Mayday. Yeah, May- do Mayday. Mayday Parker. Like, that That actually would be really clever if Sony just decided, you know what? Our Marvel Universe is MC2. Yeah, because they could. And, like, they could, they could just be like, hey, Disney, you can have Tom Holland. We're going to age everybody up. And jump ahead 20 yeah, years. Yeah, like, bring back Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I, I could sort of see that. Yeah, bring back older... Especially especially if that means I get Dark Devil. Yes, of course you do. Why wouldn't you get Dark Devil? Like, I could see a deal where Marvel cuts, cuts a deal for all the MC2 characters. Mm-hmm. And it says... That they're never going to do anything with? Never. Never. And just says, sure, sure, guys, go to town. Have fun. Um, uh, For what it's worth, for the people who are wondering... So, MC2 is an alternate timeline future of the Marvel Universe where Spider-Man has retired and his daughter, May Parker, has become Spider-Girl. But anyway, I, I agree that, that that would actually be a really clever way to have your own Spider-Verse separate from the MCU would be to just say, okay, we're going to push everything forward 20 years. Yep. I mean, that that kind of fits Tobey Maguire's age range, too. It does. It does. Be like, hey, Tobey Maguire, why don't you be, be this old dad character now? So okay. Sure. Hmm. <laughs> Um, for what it's worth, the director who is working on this secret maybe Madame Web movie uh, was supposed to be the first woman to direct a Star Trek movie until uh, that movie got put on hold when all of the contracts fell apart with uh, Chris Pine and Hemsworth and all that. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still upset about this, about Star Trek Four because, you know, Star Trek Beyond was good. It was very good. It was probably my favorite of those three movies. Yeah. Just which is which is saying something because I like the first one a lot. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. So, yeah. So anyway, going to our last and final uh, news piece for Hellstrom Watch is another bit of Sony news. This one is in connection to Disney, though, and that is. That we have a rumor, and caution, rumor, that Disney and Sony may be collaborating to develop a Spider-Man 2099 series for Disney+. Plus. Please, 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 please. Speaking of alternate future timelines that are awesome. Yes. Yes. Like... I want more things where Sony and Disney play nice of each other. Yes. And I want them to be huge successes. Sure. And I want Venom and Morbius 
and Madam Web and whatever the fuck else to go die in a fire. <laughs> you know what? That sounds like an awful lot of carnage. Uh, you did it to me again. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so so there's talk that there could be a 2099 series of some sort, which would be awesome. Of course, Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara, made a very brief cameo in the animated Spider-Verse movie. Oh, such a good scene. In which he was played by Oscar Isaac. Yep. Probably not going to play him in a series, and though. No, no. However, it's been suggested that 2099 will play a bigger role in the sequel to Spider-Verse, so I would expect them to get him back for that. Yeah, that's fun. That's cool. Let's do that. That's just fun. Sounds cool. And what's funny is there are like four different versions of the 2099 universe in Marvel Comics, so you could easily have a 2099 series coexist with the 2099 of Spider-Verse. Yes. Like... It gets real confusing. There are multiple Miguel O'Hara's. There are. There was one as part of Exiles for a while. Yep. Yep. And then there's one who's a teen, like Peter Parker originally was. Because Spider-Man must be a teenager! Yep. I just... I've never understood that logic. People get older. Yeah. For example, Johnny Storm has gotten older. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, you've let him evolve as a person and move on with his life. and To the point that one of Johnny Storm's ex-girlfriends ended up, like, marrying Quicksilver, right? Yeah, well, let's not even mention the ex, you know, the ex-wife of Johnny oh, Storm. Oh, yeah, the, the, oh, the scroll. The scroll. <laughs> that he thought was Alicia. Yeah. Because, you know... The character that we most closely associate with Johnny Storm, Alicia. <laughs> what the hell, John Byrne? Uh, yeah. No, I actually have a handful of comics from when I was a kid that were in that era where, like, you opened up a Fantastic Four book and there's Sue and there's Johnny and there's Lijah the Skrull, and there's Namor. Reed's nowhere to be seen, but nobody seems to care. Oh yeah, he was dead at that point. And um, Scott Lang <laughs> took his place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until he got possessed by the giant ant that we covered way back at the beginning of this, of this podcast. Holy crap, I forgot about that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Because he, he got possessed by that, that evil ant and, and built himself some 90s armor. I really want Fantastic Cast to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get to that yeah, issue? To the, like, you know, <laughs> sure, to get to read the burn stuff, that's fine. But read, t- tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I think that does it for an all-over-the-place installment of Hellstrom Watch. Um, so, I think we have more than earned ourselves a short break. Oh, God, please, yes. And then, after these messages, we will be right back with Tales of the Zombie, number four. Stay. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. 
My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding, comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. You know what they say. There's always room for dessert. And here it is. The cherry on the cheesecake. The moment we've all been waiting for. The premiere of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Number 604, Zombie Nightmare. Starring me. Your host with the most. Your king of fromage. The pilgrim of thanks, Adam West. And in Zombie Nightmare, What's my play, role sir? called for a hard, cold, desperate Adam West. And the more I thought about my agent Fred Pizzazz agreeing to do this turkey, the more desperate I became. So sit back and enjoy our last turkey. Mm -hmm. Zombie Nightmare. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our first issue this episode is... Tales of the Zombie number four. Cover date on this one is March 1974. And we're going to do something a little bit differently with these. There are a lot of stories in this comic, or this magazine rather, and not all of them great. So what we're actually going to focus on on this episode is just the stuff featuring Simon Garth, the zombie. And we're probably going to start covering Tales of Zombie and some of the other magazine features like that in the future. Unless there's a story that really jumps out to us, we're probably going to just start covering just the hero feature stories. You know, the big, the, the Marvel monsters that are reoccurring and less so the anthology kind of stories. Okay. So, the main story on this one is actually one story cut up into two parts. One at the beginning of the issue, one at the end of the issue. And it's called The Law and Philip Bliss, Part 1. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Pablo Marcos. Inker is Pablo Marcos. Letter is Gaspar Saladino. The zombie, Simon Garth, stands on the same cliff where 12 hours earlier... He had tossed a suicidal Mora Mason to her death, and it is there where he is confronted by the angry voodoo congregation, congregation from last issue. 
The mob attacks the zombie, putting him through a number of gruesome tests to prove to themselves that he is truly one of the undead. Satisfied and irked by Simon's non-response to their assault, the mob leaves, but not before uttering a threat towards Garth's daughter, Donna. It is at that that the zombie comes to action, quickly slaughtering locals who might harm the unsuspecting Donna. It is only by the interference of the voodoo priestess Catania that the zombie is halted. Paralyzing Simon Garth with a doll in his image, the congregation tosses the zombie from the cliff into the sea. Back at the estate of Anton Cartier, the now-widowed Bruce Mason bemoans the death of Moira and frets that he may be suspected in her murder. Anton and Donna assure him that this will not happen, assuring him that they will vouch for his innocence. Then, Donna, I don't believe in a mourning period Garth, takes the handsome young Bruce into the garden for a moonlit walk. Back in New Orleans, the bum who found the snake medallion that corresponds to the one around Simon Garth's neck walks into the all-night greasy spoon diner and shows off his new treasure to, to the regulars. This horrifies the diner's owner, Jeanette, who w explains to him that her mother was a voodoo mambo and that the undead are very real. End of part one. Part two. Changing topics, Philip Liss explains his legendary animosity towards lawyers. It seems Philip had once been a successful chemist, before long working hours drove his wife to divorce him, mistakenly, mistakenly suspecting infidelity. His wife hired a cutthroat attorney, who shackled Philip with a back-breaking alimony. Eventually, Philip snaps under the pressure of the court-ordered obligation and destroys his laboratory, causing his employers to sack him and also take him to court. This is the final straw for Philip, as he abandons his life, takes a brief foray into drunkenness, and eventually makes it his mission to destroy all lawyers. His chosen method of destruction being self-written pamphlets detailing dirty dealings by lawyers throughout the country, which he hands out outside the courthouse every day. As morning comes, Philip Bliss ends his tale so that he may resume his mission at the courthouse. The day is special, however, because Philip plans to confront one of the biggest employers of lawyers in the city, the criminal Mr. Six, who also happens to be the current squeeze of his ex-wife Lois. Lois pulls a Sweeney Todd, though, and fails to recognize her downtrodden former husband. But Mr. Six does recognize the snake pendant Philip branches as a voodoo talisman. Dejected, Philip returns to the alley across the street, only to be met by the zombie. Realizing that his medallion is real, with real power, Philip commands the undead star of the book to attack the attorneys and trash the courtroom. All of which he does. The next day, as the patrons of the Greasy Spoon Diner discuss the seemingly supernatural attack reported in that day's newspaper, Philip denies any involvement, but muses that things may finally be going his way. So, I think we're landing on what's going to become something of a, a standard formula for Simon Garth stories. Some person finds the medallion and Simon Garth gets involved in their crap? Something like that, I think. Uh, I, I do know that this Mr. Six that's been introduced will continue appearing throughout the magazine run. Oh, okay. 
I, I thought it was kind of funny. Well, well, the whole Philip Bliss stuff is funny. Yes. Well, it, it's drawn very broadly, you know, like like it's it's almost like a caricature of this type of character. Yes, and it's a very it's a very Steve Gerber kind of shtick for him to go with. Al- yes. Alimony and lawyers ruined my life, so I'm going to destroy all lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 like those signs you see on the road where it's like, you know, I saw one today, actually. Well, it's like one of the signs you see on the road. Uh, divorce isn't a crime. Alimony shouldn't be a life sentence. Right. And I'm just like, ah, okay. We, we won't even touch on the whole MRA bullshit of all that, but you know. Right, right. Um, one thing I do just want to say is, and I think it comes up almost every time we cover Tales of the Zombie, but I really love Pablo Marcos's art. Oh, yeah. It's really good. It's easy the best art in this issue. Yeah, yeah. Like that that portrait of Simon Garth on the splash. It's good. It's 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 just the line work, the detail. And and part of it is, you know, when you're doing black and white, I guess you can just really like hone in on those details with the the inks. But but it's it's great. And and the the sort of montage that you get right after that. Yeah, it's it. You can tell that Pablo Marcos comes from a tradition of European comics. Yes, like it's got that feel. Like like uh, somewhere in the vicinity of uh, Metal Hurlant or 2000 AD or the the Italian comics. I don't know. It's a whole other vibe, and it fits. The otherworldliness of the voodoo stuff. Yeah, it's it. It's very detailed work, and it's very beautiful. Yeah, and it may be my copy, but I feel like if this was published today, it would just be amazing because it's just like the artwork's almost too good for the copy I have. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it, it looks like it needs. Some remastering, and I'm sure there is some either digital or print collection that that has really cleaned these up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, because I just I can just imagine that on high quality paper, this line work is just amazing. Almost certainly. I also couldn't help but laugh a little bit when uh, Simon Garth reveals himself to. Philip, and it looks like Philip almost has a heart attack. Yep. He he he's, he sees Simon and he collapses. It, the only thing funnier could be if he just straight up fainted, like a little like like a little old lady. Right, right. Well, because for a second I thought, oh, he's dying. What happens with the medallion if it's like if if he's dead? Yeah. Although, we should probably talk about him getting to uh, Philip. Yeah. There's this fight on the docks where yes, a man is, is. Where a man is horribly mutilated for life. 
Yes. Like Simon um, Garth snaps his back. Batman on oh, Bane's oh, Bane on Batman. I was about style. to say he he pulls a he pulls a nightfall on him. Yes. Like, wow, that guy's not coming back from that. He's not Bruce Wayne. Like, it's the exact same panel. Like, it is. swap out Bane for Simon Garth. It is that panel. <laughs> and it shouldn't be funny, but it kind of is. Yeah, I'm like, wow, he's horribly crippled for the rest of his life, and all he tried to do is help a guard. And, and like, in the next panel, like, he is, like, twisted like a pretzel. Yes. And Paula Marcos's work is detailed enough where you're like, ha ha, that you're not like, ha ha, that's cartoony violence. You're like, ha ha, he's horribly mangled. Right. Right. It's it's a little bit upsetting. Just a, just a wee bit. Although and, and the caption and the caption makes it clear that it snapped his spine. Yes. Yeah. And all because the guard was stupid. If you look on the previous page, the guard just, like, sees a guy not even, like, approaching him or threatening him. Just sees a guy walking past, thinks he looks funny, and just starts shooting at him. Yeah, a guy who literally just walked up the steps out of the water. Yes. Like, if it, it, at, at best, he should think this. There's the guy needs help. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't think, oh, this guy's walking away from me and not answering my calls. Better shoot him. Also, he shoots him in the back repeatedly. Yes. yes. That that's just not the way you do that. Right. He's committed right. no crime. He's hurted no person. Yeah, he looks weird. You maybe think he needs some help, but don't you know, just unload your gun on him. Right. And he's not even a cop. He's a night watchman. Yeah, why does he even have a gun? Right. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, it feels a lot like there's a lot of setup in this story. Yes. It feels a bit contrived that Philip's ex-wife is now the main squeeze of who I guess is going to be our main villain. Something like that, at least adjacent to... A main villain, like he, he's going to be in the mix for a while. Yep, it's just <laughs> she doesn't even recognize him. Yeah, yeah, that's just sad. Like I feel like even if I lost a bunch of weight from like living rough, and you know, got really unhealthy, I feel like my wife would still recognize me. Yeah, I mean, he he does say at one point that, like, he asked them to guess how old he is, and he's a solid 20 years younger than they guess. This is true. He is. Uh, it's just... I feel, you feel really bad for the guy, especially since... And he and he actually does look noticeably different in the flashbacks. This is true. Like, like in the flashbacks, he looks like 1950s Clint Eastwood. Ooh, I can, I can see that. You know, like Reven- <laughs> Revenge of the Creature Clint Eastwood. Exactly. Lab coat and all. Yeah, there you go. Yep. 
It's just... Mm. But yeah, so it's it's funny, like, it, this is a lot of pages, but there's not really a lot of story here. No. It, and it's good, it's a fun read, but it's mostly, you get a little bit at the beginning that resolves where the last issue left off. Yes. And we get a little bit with the daughter. Yes. Establishing, you know, what's going on with her and 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 sort of that set of recurring characters. Okay, let's talk about we've we've talked about Donna before and the fact yeah. that she doesn't allow a guy to have a proper mourning period. But damn girl. It's like, "Oh, I'm sorry your wife died 12 hours ago, but let's go on this <laughs> nice moonlit walk together." Hee <laughs> hee. Yeah. It's like that's wow. Like, they mentioned the fact that they were having trouble. Okay. Yep. That's that's understandable. You're having some trouble. Okay. His wife still died 12 hours ago. Right. And he's very legitimately concerned that he might be seen as an accessory to murder. Like, Eve, like, let's imagine that you're married to somebody and... For whatever reason, you guys divorce. And like years later, she dies. You still have a mourning period for her, even though you guys haven't been together in however amount of time. Sure. It's just. God. Gerber. The heck, man. (laughs) Yeah. What's funny is there's another story like that in this magazine. (laughs) Oh no, I kind of skipped over the rest of them. What was it? Um, it is the... I'm looking for the title now. Uh, Night Filth Rising. Mm-hmm. Which is a Doug Munch story, actually. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Uh, it looks like some kids accidentally resurrect a zombie. Um... And the zombie goes after the guy that he thinks killed him and stole his wife. But then it turns out that the wife was the one behind it all along. And that it was all it was all an inheritance ploy. That's so like so she she used one guy to get rid of the other guy. Then brought the other guy back as a zombie to get rid of the the the, the guy that she ended up with. <laughs> okay. Um, but because it turns out it was her kid who was kicking down tombstones re- and resurrected the zombie in the first place, the cops show up like before she has time to get rid of the bodies. Oh, and she and she ends up going to jail anyway. And so it looks like she committed a double murder. Nice. Which she kind which she kinda did. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. That's probably the uh, that's probably the best of the non Simon Garth stories in the magazine. But the the talking about morning periods made me think of it. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Okay, what we won't we won't get there yet. So like, yeah, the supporting characters, I'm kind of a disappointed Donna. Um, Anton yeah. Cartier is still awesome. 
Yeah, he doesn't get much to do in this issue because he's really only in that one page. I feel like he the only thing he gets to do in this issue is just look at Donna and like You silly girl. Like like the the last panel as she is walking off hand in hand with the director. Like uh Anton is just sort of looking disapprovingly at them. Well, the look he has on this is like, ah, young love. But like <laughs> realistically it's like Oh my god, girl, what are you doing? Yep. <laughs> I feel like Buck Cohen, he's one of these characters we we insert our own thoughts into. Yes, yes. <laughs> he is very much the Buck Cohen figure of these stories. Oh, definitely. And I, I would like to see more of him, actually. Yes, I would as well. Yeah, signs were signs were turning into old men. The the the, the, <laughs> the, the, the young lovers in the story just seem stupid to us, and the older older men were like, "Yeah, listen to this guy. He's the real star." Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, I did enjoy just the visuals of Simon Garth smashing up the courtroom. Yes, it it's. I mean, uh, it it reminded me a little bit of. Uh, the TV movie Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Oh, uh, where the, there's the dream sequence where Banner like has this nightmare that he's on the stand in a in a like as as the uh, the accused in a trial and like gets stressed out and becomes the Hulk in the middle of his testimony. See, it kind of reminded me of the courtroom scene from Ghostbusters too. I can see that. But, like, this whole issue, you know what it really reminded me of? What's that? Zombie Nightmare. Oh, the the MST3K. Yeah, the MST3K episode where it's like... The one with Adam West. The one with Adam <laughs> West. <laughs> Adam West, uh, Tia Carrere, and uh, John Michael Thor. Yeah. As the zombie. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a lot of that because it's like you know, zombie is brought back to get revenge on people. Very similar. Yes, yes. Well, and that's you know we're still, even though it's the seventies and Night of the Living Dead has come and gone, like we are still operating more in the voodoo tradition of like zombie horror, and that is usually a tradition of revenge stories. Yes. So, they're all kind of go- coming from the, the same well. Yeah. So, it's it makes sense. And, yeah. And, uh, like I say, it's, it's a fun story. It's, it's There's not as much going on as I had hoped for, given how many pages of the magazine it is. But but the, the visuals are so good... And and it moves with such a quick pace that, that it's okay. Yeah. It's 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 easily the best story in the magazine. Yeah, yeah. Like like I say, out of the others, that one Doug Munch story is okay, but the rest is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's one there's one prose piece about Live and Let Die. Okay. Um, which is mostly sort of comparing the movie to the Fleming novel, 
which is very different. Yes. And also they use some panels here and there from a James Bond newspaper strip that Pablo Marcos did at one point. Interesting. And it, it's it's kind of cool because uh, Pablo Marcos's art very clearly imagines Sean Connery in the role. Oh, yeah. That's definitely Sean Connery there. It's Like, I'm looking at the panel right now that... Uh, depicts the uh the maiming of Felix Leiter which is not in the movie but is definitely in the book. Oh, that's interesting. Now, the maiming of Felix Leiter, that's the shark scene that ends up in License to Kill, right? Yes, so they they because they didn't use it in Live and Let Die, they brought back the exact same actor, one of the few times the same actor played Leiter twice so that they could do it to him in uh, License to Kill. Okay. Gotcha. But but yeah, uh Don McGregor was not a fan of the the Live and Let Die movie. So that might be a good place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have several stories from Dracula Lives, number five. We'll be right back. Do you scan the night sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena? Do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the CIA? Ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of? Come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast, Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe. We'll talk about telepomancy, haunted railroads, sentient umbrella spirits, mind-altering video games, remote viewing, SpongeBob conspiracy theories, and only gets weirder from there. Each episode will share three stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts! Vampires are nasty little problem. I was bitten! I am vampire! The solution of vampire hunt. I really must fly. Carry across some holy water. A wooden stake. Dracula the series, Saturdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on the Sci-Fi Channel. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next issue is Dracula Lives number five. Its cover date is March 1974. And our first story is Stoker's Dracula chapter one. Written by Roy Thomas and art by Dick Giordano. On May 3rd, 1890, English solicitor Jonathan Harker writes to his fiancée, Mina Murray, as he takes the slow train from Munich to Transylvania. Upon his arrival, he checks into a local inn, where none of the locals will talk about the mysterious count who has hired Harker's firm. That night, as he boards the coach that will begin the next leg of his journey through the Borgo Pass, the innkeeper's wife insists that he wear a simple cross around his neck. His fellow passengers are equally superstitious, warning Harker that it is the eve of St. George's Day, a night when all evil things in the world have full sway. The driver of the coach tries to convince Harker to abandon his journey and ride the rest of the way to Bukovinia, when suddenly another coach arrives to take Harker to Castle Dracula. Harker boards the mysterious new coach, and the lengthy drive through the wooded pass seems to go in circles, until the driver suddenly stops and leaves to perform some arcane ritual before abandoning the coach. A pack of wolves circles the coach, until suddenly the coachman returns, dismissing the wolves and claiming Harker as the property of Count Dracula. 
Finally, Jonathan Harker arrives at his destination. The doors to the castle creak open, and its owner steps forward to say, I am Dracula. Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. Okay, so this is a fairly legendary adaptation of the story. Yes. Partially because... For, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and for many years, unfinished. Yes. Like, I can't, I can't remember the reason why. Is it because Dracula Lives gets canceled? I think so. <laughs> um... Let's see. It it gets interrupted at one point because uh, issue number nine does not have an installment. But yeah, it, it's because the magazine gets canceled. Okay. Um, then... They pick it up briefly for one issue of Marvel Preview. And then after 30 years, they finally finish it. Yay! In in 2004. That's it. That's incredible. And with a different um, publisher. I, uh, it's still Marvel. Oh, still Marvel? Okay. Yep. Uh, Marvel commissioned them to finish it. And, uh, and they published the... They reprinted the originals. And then put the new material at the end, uh, and and then collected the whole thing. Um, I have the collection on my shelf, signed by Roy. Yes, very good. I've I've seen it before, and I think just in time too. Because when does Dick G- Dick Giordano die? Um, gosh, had to have been soon after that. Uh, Giordano, two thousand ten. Okay, so a few years later. Yeah, yeah. But that had to have been one of the last things that he really worked on. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's gorgeous. It's faithful. It, yes, it's very faithful and it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like, I think part of the reason that Marvel wanted it completed is just it's the beginning here is just so good. Yeah. And and it it tells the story without feeling like one of those like illustrated classics type comics like there there's more artistry going on than that yes like some of those classics illustrated were a bit slapdash this is not yeah. slapdash and and you know we we cited Roy Thomas as the writer which is accurate but so much of the the language comes directly from Stoker yes it's really quite lovely. And and the Dracula is um sort of like a cross between Marvel's Dracula and some other versions. Like he doesn't look exactly like the the Tomb of Dracula version. No, in fact, I was going to ask you who does he look like here? Um, gosh, I... 
Because I feel... Cause I'm, I'm, so I'm looking at the splash, because the splash is the best look at his face. Yeah, the, the title page. I feel like is does he look like oh god I can't remember his name right now he's Perry White in Superman Returns oh yeah uh, Frank Le- um, Frank Lagella yes I can see that yeah the the especially the hair yeah he really looks like Frank Lagella to me. Yeah, like the the cheekbones and the hair, and I like the Langella Dracula, so that that works for me. Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't have a lot to say about this one except that it's really pretty and really faithful. Yeah, like like I mean, if if you know the story of Dracula, this isn't doing anything new with it, but it's sometimes there's just something to be enjoyed about a sumptuous retelling. Gorgeous retelling, really. It's yeah. just, I, 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 I greatly enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and I look forward to the other installments because I haven't read these in a while, and and I don't think I've ever looked at the black and white versions before. Hmm. Uh, so, unless you've got anything, no. I think we can move on to our next story, which is a duel of demons. Written by Jerry Conway and drawn and inked by Frank Springer. It is summer 1785, as Dracula and his servant Carlos arrive at a French inn. A group of men recognize the Count as the man they have been hired to kill, and they resolve to do the deed once he is asleep. They burst into his room and are shocked when he bursts out of his coffin and feeds on them. As the last of the two assassins dies, he reveals the name of his employer... Cagliostro. His hunger satisfied, Dracula and Carlos leave the inn for Paris. In the palace of Louis XVI, the immortal Cagliostro rages that his plot against Dracula didn't work, but reveals he has other plans to ensure that Dracula is destroyed. The next evening, Dracula arrives at the court of King Louis, having made formal request for an audience. He arrives bearing a gift of jewels, and requests that he be made an advisor to the throne. Louis agrees, and introduces his other advisor, Alessandro di Cagliostro. Later that night, Dracula feeds on a courtesan. As Carlos prepares his master's coffin, he suddenly falls dead, a victim of Cagliostro's tendrils of death. Dracula finds Carlos's body, and, is, and swears vengeance for such humiliation. He confronts Cagliostro, but is constrained by the sorcerer's tendrils of death. He breaks free, and as the fight turns physical, Dracula begins to hypnotize his foe. Cagliostro's wife, Lorenza, attacks Dracula, breaking the spell, and leading Dracula to remember his intention to repay Cagliostro in kind. The Count drains her of blood and flies away. The next night, Dracula encounters Cagliostro and his wife after supper, with the sorcerer revealing that he rescued her from near death. Dracula has the last laugh, however, as he reveals that he didn't fight Lorenza to feed on her, but rather to turn her into one of the undead. As Dracula walks away, Lorenza bears her fangs at Cagliostro. 
this was a bit of a letdown. It was not the the face off that I hoped for. No, because they teased the fight between Dracula and Cagliostro from the first issue of Dracula Lives. And like with a title like a duel of demons, you expect like this big like like sorcerer's duel. Yes. You expect something really epic. And yeah. the payoff here with the White King turned to a vampire feels like something we've seen a dozen times in Dracula stories at Marvel. Well, it, it feels like like a fifties horror comic. Yes. Like like it's the sort of thing you see in an anthology. Yeah. It's just disappointing. Really disappointing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ah, and it's a thing that <clears throat> happened. Okay. And honestly, the next story does a similar twist, but slightly better. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I, the, the art's fine, I guess. So, uh, if we're talking about the next story, we should probably just go ahead and move to that summary. Yeah, we can do that. We, we can talk about the next one. Because, again, I just don't know there's a lot to talk about with Duel of Demons. <clears throat> um, uh, other than it was disappointing. So, let's move on to Night Flight to Terror, written by Tony Isabella. Uh, pencils by Gene Colan. Inks by Pablo Marcos. Late at night, a plane has departed from Los Angeles to New York. One of the 200 passengers has a bomb, and another of them is Dracula. The various passengers are paralyzed with fear, but Dracula's only concern is that he be able to reach his coffin before dawn. He's hesitant to attack, however, in that he would not be able to fly the plane himself should something go wrong. However, when the bomber reveals he has no demands, Aside from the complete destruction of the plane and the people on it, Dracula decides to make his move. First he tries hypnosis, but the bomber's madness has pushed him beyond such controls. The Count charges at the bomber, but in the fight, the explosive detonates, forcing a crash landing in the desert outside Las Vegas. Emergency responders arrive, taking the casualties, including Dracula, to the hospital. Dracula awakens after a massive blood transfusion and immediately goes after the bomber, who also survived the crash. He bites the man, turning him into a vampire, and then returns him to the hospital to die a horrible, burning death as dawn breaks. So the same exact ending. Basically, but, but accomplished better, I think. Oh yeah, this story is way better. Although it sounds like the setup to a joke. So It does. Like, <laughs> this hijacker hijacks a plane, right? And on this plane, there's an Italian, a beautiful actress, a rich executive, and Dracula. <laughs> um, the other thing that I couldn't help but, but think of is... Okay, so cover date on this was what? 75? 74. No, 74. March 74. 70, 74. So it probably came um, out around Christmas. Right, right. Um, and which means that I, I would not be surprised if they're riffing off of the movie Airport. Oh, gosh. Which was 1970. Well, there's a whole glut 
of airplane hijack movies and airplane disaster movies yes. that happen around this time. Yeah, but that's the one where, like, the crazy demolition expert is carrying a bomb and a life insurance policy. Like, it's the plot that uh, Airplane 2 spoofs with Sonny Bono. Yes. And there... There is a MST3K episode from the KTMA era. Mm-hmm. Where the Concorde gets hijacked. Or there's a there's yeah. a disaster on the Concorde. And that's the whole movie. It was actually a pretty good movie. It had Burgess Meredith yeah. as the as the creator of the plane who ends up dying to save the rest of the passengers. Interesting. Because there was an airport sequel called The Concorde, but that's not the MST3K. No, the MST3K, it's a made-for-TV movie. Give me a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, most of the KTMA stuff was made-for-TV. Right. Stuff that they had the rights to for... Right. Stuff they did not have to seek out. Yes. Was it uh, Death Flight? Death Flight. There you go. And it's the testing of a supersonic plane. And, (laughs) of course, something goes wrong. And it's really one of the stronger episodes of the... You know what's hilarious? Um, It's directed by David Lowell Rich, who also directed the Concorde Airport 79. Oh, that's Rich. Oh, God, I I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) (laughs) He directed Death Flight in 77, and two years later directed the Concorde Airport 79. You're like, well, you've made this movie already. (laughs) How would you like a budget? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. (sighs) But yes, it feels very much like one of those, like, airplane disaster movies. Yeah. And, Except with Dracula. Yeah. Which honestly is an improvement. <laughs> yeah. And I, I apologize for once again bringing things back to MST3K, guys. It's just because, like but Michael Bailey says, all things come back to Superman. For me, all things come back to MST3K. But we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. Right. Um, and this is not the first time that Dracula has punished someone by turning them and then leaving them to be exposed to the sun. Um, he's done that at least once in Tomb of Dracula. Yes. Um, did, a l- did a little bit more effectively here, I have to say. I think it worked better here, yeah. And the last few panels of the the guy, like, slowly realizing what's happening as his flesh burns away is pretty cool. Yes, and the nurse's reaction, nobody is going to believe her. Right, right. I love that this skeleton is left behind. Me too. And that it's still wearing all of its clothes. <laughs> you know, she's going go to go to get help, and by the time she goes back, it'll like be the, dust. The, but the, still. the skeleton still has a bandage on its head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, this one, it's a lot, sh- it's shorter than the Cagliostro story, and that also works in its favor. It doesn't really? overstay its It felt so much meatier. Yeah. Like, but it do- it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's it's almost all action. You know, I ca- I felt I feel like these people all would have survived if Dracula had not been in this plane. <laughs> I feel like somebody could have talked this guy down. Just looking at him, he doesn't seem like he's fully committed. You know, 
<laughs> Even though he was immune to hypnosis. Yeah. I feel, I, I really feel like, you know, somebody could talk this guy down. Hmm. Except Dracula was there and he didn't want to be patient about it. Right. Because <laughs> th- there are other ways he could have done this besides just, like, knocking the detonator from the guy's hand and de- blowing up the bomb. Right. Um, now is also, I guess, a good a time as any to mention there is one prose story here that is, in continuity, a Marvel Dracula short story. Uh-huh. Uh, it is called Demons in Darkness. It's by Jerry Conway. Or as I like to call it, Fright Night with Dracula. See, I was thinking Salem's Lot. I've never seen Salem's Lot. Okay, well, so here's the thing. Here's the thing, is Salem's Lot comes out the next year, the novel. 1975 is when Stephen King publishes Salem's Lot. Um, Uh But the similarities are striking, partly in that when when Stephen King tells the story of how he came to write Salem's Lot, it begins with a conversation he has with his wife, where he asks, what would happen if Dracula came back in the 20th century, and visited America. And the response was, he'd probably be run over by a yellow cab on Park Avenue. Which is why Stephen King, when writing his vampire novel, has the vampires go to a small rural town instead of a big city. Ah, okay. And so what we have here, a year earlier, is Dracula visiting like a small rural town. New England, no less. Right, right. Well, because Salem's Lot, it's Stephen King, it's it's in uh, Maine. You know, I would um, I would say that there's no way that that inspired this because Salem's Lot is a huge novel and it takes time to write a huge novel. Except mm-hmm. it's Stephen fucking King. <laughs> right, he right. could write a thousand page novel and in a weekend. I don't know that I don't I don't know that it inspired it, but I there are just some striking similarities and even. The, the mill, the Jennings mill that Dracula seems to want because of whatever arcane rituals are connected to it. Okay. Like, like the, the, the backstory of that mill is that, that demons had been summoned there, and they're very Lovecraftian demons. Oh, and they named the demons. Ypsiloth and Rig, yeah. Like, in what story do you ever hear the demons get names? Lovecraft Except stories. Except for Old Scratch... Or, you know, okay, I guess Lovecraft stories. Like, that's the thing, is that they're explicitly making it Lovecraftian. Okay. Which which is a New England American horror. Okay. Um, Stephen King does that, too. That's true, he does. Because, because well, no, in Salem's Lot, the house that the vampires buy and live in is a house that has a history of, like, creepy Lovecraftian stuff. Oh, man. As explored in a, a prequel short story that he wrote. <laughs> oh, wow. So, again, I I can't prove that there's any actual connection between this story and, and Salem's Lot and the short story Jerusalem's Lot. But the similarities are just striking, and I couldn't help but think of them. Now, this is this story is not as good no. as any of the Stephen King stuff. No, no. It, it's, it's pretty rough, actually. Yeah. But but it reminded me a lot of Stephen King. Yeah, especially with the, with the young protagonist yeah. like growing up quick, you know. 
Yeah. Again, that's why I kind of refer to to his, like, Fright Night with Dracula. That, too. There's definitely a Fright Night element, too. Which, that's even later. That's in, what, the 80s? Yes. But you have this kid who nobody believes, hey, this is Dracula. (laughs) So he has to go it alone and take him on. It's a very 80s story, really. Yeah, yeah. So, but I just wanted to mention that in passing. It's not worth summarizing, really, because I don't know that it adds too much to the Dracula-Marvel continuity, but it is part of the canon, so I figured I'd mention it. Just curious, aren't we getting a new Salem's Lot movie? Our miniseries? Yes. There, there's one in development. I don't know how far along it is. Because um, there's been two. There's the good one that was done in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then there's the not good one from the, 2004. Okay. And we're also getting another adaptation of The Stand, I believe. Yes. That one they just revealed some pictures of. Okay. Um, but yeah, New Line Cinema is developing a movie version um, produced by James Wan, uh, with the same screenwriter who did it. Okay. Interesting. Well, which one? Wait, the St- Salem's Lot or the Stand? Salem's Lot. Okay. The Stand, I think, is being done as a TV series. Ooh, that's an interesting time for that to come out. Uh, because it's going to air on the CBS All Access. Ah. So finally, there's something other than Star Trek to watch on that network. <laughs> oh, I take that back. They've got Twilight Zone. I, they do have Twilight and Zone. And the good, the Good Wife spinoff, The Good Fight. True. True. And Young Sheldon. <laughs> Come on, man. We can't discount Young Sheldon. And all the Hawaii Five O you could ever want to watch. So much Hawaii. Did they have the original? Probably. I mean, I know they've got all of the revival, but I'm pretty sure they still own the original. I would actually like to watch the original. Yeah. Um, of course, I, I yeah, canceled so, my CBS All Access once Picard stopped, but you know. I still haven't watched Picard, so. You should. I know, you're you're, you're I've, getting I've, there. It's fine. Um, but we do have one last single-page story in this Dracula Lives, and that is... We do? Oh, yeah! Yes. Uh, the Boyhood of Dracula... Written by Tony Isabella, drawn by Val Merrick. And what made Dracula such a cruel man? Perhaps it was the Turkish invaders who imprisoned and beat him as a child. Or the Hungarian invaders who imprisoned him sometime later, leading him to begin torturing small animals and birds. Or perhaps his reputation was merely the result of scare tactics employed to protect his people from these enemies. Nobody knows for sure, not even Tony Isabella. What motivated this story? I don't know. I guess they want, they liked the one-pagers from last time that were like the different types of vampires. Oh, yeah. I would love more of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what this reminds me of? Yeah. You ever read old issues of Journey into Mystery? Yes. Where you get the boyhood of Thor. Like Kid Thor and Kid Loki. Kid, Kid Thor and Kid Loki. And Thor's like, come on, Loki, let's go play baseball or what, some crap like that. And the whole time Loki's like, when I grow up, I'm going to kill you, brother. <laughs> right. Okay, let's go play baseball. <laughs> yeah, that that's basically sort of what we got here. What's funny is the whole thing is undermined by, I don't know, 
Dracula Lives number one, where we get a lengthy origin story explaining exactly why Dracula is the way he is. Yes. <laughs> Although, he was an asshole already, let's be honest. He was. He was already a warlord. Yes, but... this. <laughs> okay, Tony Isabella. But yeah, I, 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 I think his marching orders were, we want you to explore... Dracula's youth, and you've only got one page. Yep. Go. Yep. And, you know, he did his best with it, but there's just nothing, there's no, there's no material. Yep. <laughs> so, we've got a promo for the next issue, um, continuing the Thomas Giordano adaptation of Stoker's Dracula, and... More of Dracula in France as the French Revolution begins. We, oui. uh, as Dracula faces the deadly blade of the guillotine, <laughs> and then and then Dracula invades the Vatican in Chapel of Blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah, more magazine, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I I don't know. Like, I think Dracula Lives might be my favorite of the two. Just because the Stoker adaptation is so good. And I really like the airplane story. Yeah. But because it fits into that 70s kitsch so well. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with the, the zombie story. Like, it's fine. But it also, it takes... A lot of pages to tell a very simple setup. Yes. It does. So if I had to pick, story-wise, the Dracula book, um, in terms of art, I really love the Pablo Marcos zombie stuff. Anyway, that does it for Dracula Lives. We'll be right (laughs) back with our first winners from the Thomas Tournament. Yeah. Really exciting. I wonder who won. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitists, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. It's the world's greatest superhero collection featuring Batman and the other half of the dynamic duo, Robin. The Hulk, that green superhero, he's fully posable. Falcon, the winged black superhero. Shazam and Iron Man, the world's greatest superheroes collection. Each superhero action figure sold separately from Mego. Welcome back, sports fans, to the first round of the Thomas Tournament. And of course, for those of you who are playing along at home, this is a topic that got started last episode where we kind of talked about, you know, what was the better Roy Thomas creation? The Invaders are the All-Star All-Star Squadron, 
and we decided we would put it to you guys. And so that's right. The Thomas tournament was born. And as we record this, we are two weeks into the tournament. Yep. And last week we had our first matchup. On the Marvel side, we had Ghost Rider versus 3D Man. And on the DC side, we had Jade versus Silver Swan. And I don't know about you guys, but I was honestly shocked by the result of the Marvel matchup as we had Ghost Rider winning over to 3D Man. The, yeah. the 3D Man, guys, come on! Yeah, proud member of the Skull Kill crew. Yeah, and he was a he was a 1950s Avenger. Yeah, come on guys, come on. But I mean, to be fair, uh, the uh, the guys over at Inner Demons, you know, they they called on on their their fans to jump in and uh, and make their voices heard. So if you don't want that to happen in future installments, make sure you vote too. Yeah, it's um, they they that definitely got the most votes of any of our. Uh, polls on last week but on that one um, Ghost Rider came out with 88% of the vote to 3D Man's 12 yeah which I guess 3D Man is not a particularly well known character the second version of the 3D Man has shown up more recently but but the original kind of dropped off the radar yeah I think he aged out of it, honestly, because yeah, well, because the and he passed on his costume and glasses to the new guy, the formerly triathlon. Yeah, Delray Garrett, who of course prior to being 3D Man was triathlon on the Busick Perez Avengers. Right, right. And he found out there. So, go ahead. Well, yeah, and, and so like like that's the version I know a little better, to be honest. Like I've read. The, the what if that 3D Man is in, like the 50s Avengers yeah. thing, um, which sort of began the Agents of Atlas. Yeah. And he shows up in, a, in Avengers Forever. Yes. And of course, it's later found out that the that triathlon actually gets his powers from 3D Man in a weird way. Right. It's a whole... Which leads him, which leads him to become the new 3D Man. Yeah, it's a whole cult conspiracy and all fun all kinds of fun stuff but i i think it's yeah. fun yeah um but i guess ghost rider is probably the better known character maybe i guess possibly <laughs> so yeah a good good job and congratulations to all you ghost heads out there and yeah. in our dc poll we had jade coming out on top with 100 percent of the vote <laughs> I mean, was there ever any doubt there? No, in fact, when you prepared the bracket for this one, I had no idea who Silver Swan was, and I still don't. Yeah, Infinite, Infinity Inc. villain, I think. Uh, or maybe a Wonder Woman? Might be a I Wonder Woman. I think a Wonder Woman villain. That, that sounds right, because I think there's been more than one version of Silver Swan. Okay. Okay. But yeah, uh, Jade beat her into the dust. Yeah. Um, but I think we can also go ahead and cover our week two brackets. Oh? Um, because uh, by the time this comes out, the, the voting will be will be done. Um, but looking at things now, and, you know, sh should I admit that we're recording early? Yeah, go ahead and record. We're, we're recording this yeah. a few days early. 
Yeah, so if things changed, sorry, things changed. But as of right now, it looks like a pretty clear uh, victory in, in both of the polls. Um, in our Marvel poll, we have Black Knight versus Stingray. Yep. So Dane Whitman himself versus uh, whoever the hell Stingray is. Oh, gosh, if you hadn't asked me... <laughs> uh, honestly, thing is, I actually like Stingray. Yes. I think he's a cool character. He's he's a really good Marvel team. No, no Marvel two and one that I read not too long ago. Mm. And he, he's a he's in a lot of Namor stuff. He's a fun too. character. I yeah. actually like him a bit um, more. Walter no- Walter Newell. Right, right, right. Yeah, he was also the leader of the initiative team in Hawaii. Cool. Ah. Uh, a nice gig if you can get it. But right, yeah, right now, Black Knight is in a very strong lead, expected to win with right now seventy percent of the vote. Yeah, this was a little bit closer than the ones last week, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be yeah. really <laughs> amused if some because this this will come out at midnight, so it'll be right. really amusing if one of our listeners decides to jump in. And get a bunch of people to vote and skew, skew things. things towards Stingray before the poll closes at <laughs> noon. That'd be that'd be amusing, <laughs> right? Right. And and then on our DC side for week two, we have Brainwave Junior of Infinity Inc. versus Captain Carrot, the leader of the Zoo Crew. Yep. And I think on this one, there's a clear favorite, at least on my part. Um. Brainwave Jr., in my opinion, was always the weak link of Infinity Incorporated. He, he wasn't mm-hmm. a very interesting character. He didn't have a very interesting look. So I definitely went with Captain Carrot on this one. Yeah, yeah. They've improved his look for the Stargirl TV series, actually. They gave him a different costume. Well, I that's think. good, because that costume is generic AF. Yeah. Um... In fact, it's it's a palette swap of the Booster Gold costume. It is, which is kind of amusing, actually. Except Booster Gold has that spiffy collar, <laughs> which doesn't it, it 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 does well to break up the costume. I gotta say, right? So yeah, it's it's. I I think Captain Carrot's gonna win this one. Yeah, I, I think that that's. A pretty safe bet. Um, I think Brainwave Junior is probably in 3D Man territory, and a lot of people not really knowing who he is. True. And that could change as people watch the Star Girl series, because that Star Girl series, by from what I'm seeing, looks like it's secretly an Infinity Inc. series. I-, I can dig it because it's got the the second generations of Doctor Midnight and Wildcat and uh, Our Man in it, in addition to Brainwave Junior. Ooh, I need to watch this. So. But, anyway, uh, also something we're wanting to do with these, guys, is we're wanting to invite you, the listener, to send in how you think these matchups would go down. How do you think Brainwave Jr. would fare in a fight against Captain Carrot? I think he could knock into the next week. <laughs> but... <laughs> But please, give us your play-by-play. Yeah, please do. We'd love to hear from you, our fellow sports fans. Yeah, if you want to record it as audio and, and send it to us, or if you want to write it up and email it to us, uh, we'd love to see it. And, you know, if it's if it's cool, we, we might even put it on the air. Right. And Trey, why don't you tell them how they can send that to us? 
Sure. So the easiest way is going to be at our email address. That is tombofideas at gmail.com. Yep. Um, if it's text-based, I guess you could also uh, talk to us on Twitter, uh, at Tomb of Ideas. But, but really, uh, if you're sending audio or writing up something lengthy, um, Gmail is the best way to go. Yeah, definitely. We would love to hear you guys. And not just hear from you guys, but hear you guys talk about these matchups. And maybe, you know, some monster comics along the way. Absolutely. So, again, you can reach us at our email address. That's tombofideas at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to our Twitter. It's at Tomb of Ideas. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. Yeah. And um, as such, we are proud to be uh, featured alongside all kinds of shows. Cinepunks, Black Sun Dispatches, uh, uh, Weird, obscure, and potentially unsafe. Um, Cinema Smorgasbord. I'll cut out these pauses later. Uh, we've got uh, all kinds of great shows in the Cinepunks podcast uh, group, in addition to all the great writing on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X, where you'll find our episodes and the rest of their great writing and podcast material. And uh, make sure you look for us there. All right. So anyway, guys, that does it for another fantastic episode of Tomb of Ideas. Yeah, next time we, yeah, we we have another supersized episode coming your way. Um, this time featuring four comics. It's going to be Tomb of Dracula number nineteen, uh, Adventure into Fear number twenty one featuring Morbius, Ghost Rider number five, and Man Thing number four coming soon to your ear holes. Until then, bye bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior. <laughs>